1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, true child in faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration or the management of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, Instagram does not provide intimacy. Pinterest is not personal. Facebook is not friendship. And yet for all the characteristics of this generation, for all the social media and the ways that we have to be in contact with one another, this age is longing for relationship. Just aching for human contact. uh, For face-to-face time. For relationship and companionship. And you know, that is the beauty of Christianity. We are not here to teach doctrine alone. We are here to teach doctrine in relationship. That's how the message of the gospel works. You don't preach at someone, you disciple someone. That is, you pour your life into theirs. It's relational. Just as the gospel is a message itself of meaningful relationship, so meaningful relationships validate the message of the gospel. People don't like to be preached at. But people long for relationship. And we see this throughout the pastoral epistles of Paul. As he writes to Timothy and to Titus. With Timothy, he says in verse 2, To Timothy, true child in the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, you got it from me in relationship. Now you take it and give it away in relationship. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Note that. From whom you have learned them. It's not just know what you've been taught. Know what you've learned. But know from whom you got it. You're in relationship with me, Paul would say. Remember, he says in another place, your mother and your grandmother, you grew up with these things. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15 that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is how I know there will never be any such thing as teaching by artificial intelligence in the church. There will be no robo-preachers. It's not going to happen. Why? Because no one would show up for that. No one wants to come and listen to a computer espouse truth, even if it's truth. We want person to person. We need and we desire the contact because the gospel is taught in the context of relationship. And Paul is clear about that throughout. In fact, what does he say again in verse 5? But the goal of our instruction is head knowledge and information and intelligence. No, the goal of our instruction is love 
from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, or you might say a sincere trust. That's the point of the whole thing. But as Paul is writing to Timothy, you know the backstory to this letter. There is heresy in Ephesus. And the truth is, heresy happens when the goal of instruction leading to love is replaced by self-promotion and self-indulgence. When the teacher is not teaching from the position of love, and when the teacher is not teaching love, but is teaching self, is building up self, heresy enters the picture. Look at verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, what things? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Turning away from the love factor, the relationship factor, the basis of the gospel. There are those in Ephesus that are preaching themselves. And he uses the phrase, uh, fruitless discussion, which is a nice Bible translator's way of saying, empty prattle. Vain speech. Meaningless language. Why do they want to do it? Why are these heretical teachers cropping up? What's the motive? Well, the hint is right there in the, in the verse. They want to be teachers of the law. And note at the very end of it, matters about which they make confident assertions. There's your hint. They want to be the Bible answer man. They want to answer the questions. They, they want to be in a place of positional prestige. Ah, I, can, I can bump Paul out of the way and I can, I can lead this group with my ideas. I've got a greater revelation. I have a new reality that I'll bring to you. And the reality is it's empty words intended to puff up the preacher. Hey, we all like to know, or to at least to look like we know what we're talking about, right? You ever been in that place, someone asks you something, and you don't know the answer, but you give an answer anyway? And you hope it sounds good? And later you look it up and hope you were right? These guys want to be the Bible answer men. Mounts, in his commentary, wrote, Their desire is exceeded only by their ignorance. <laughs> And this theme of their ignorance continues throughout the pastoral epistles. In fact, we read this on Sunday morning, but in chapter 6, verse 5, they are conceited and understand nothing. Teachers like this, Paul says, have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And that's the deal. The heretic is depraved and deprived. Depraved in his thinking and deprived of what is real truth, what is actual These are what Paul described back in Acts chapter 20 as wolves, savage wolves in sheep's clothing. Remember he told the Ephesian elders, after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in among you. From among you, they will rise up as if to lead people astray. Savage wolves are not just dirty sheep. You know, every fellowship has dirty sheep. All of us as sheep at one time or another get some dirt on the wolf. And we roll in the mud. 
You know, we get a little mess on ourselves. Our sin is there. And in any church fellowship, you're going to have dirty sheep. It's just the way it is. Because the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17 tells us. So every fellowship has dirty sheep. That's never a concern of mine. When I hear about things going on and and, and made aware of things and, and meet with folks and talk and pray about different issues and problems and mistakes and failures and outright sins. You know what? That's what we're here for. We're here to love each other. We're here to wash each other. We're here to be washed with the water and the Word and especially with the blood of Jesus that forgives us when we get filth on our wool. But that's different than savage wolves. Because savage wolves, when they get in among us, they are intending to eat the sheep. They are carnivorous. They have an appetite. They are predators. And there are teachers in Ephesus who are savage wolves and are in it for themselves. They are not in it for the fellowship. They're not in it for the church. They're not in it for the sheep who need the washing of the water with the Word. They're in it for self. And so they're making assumptions and speculations from the law. Now note this, it's a law they did not understand. Let, let that phrase sit in your brains for a moment. A law they did not understand. The law. They want to be teachers of the law. What law? Read on, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Now, stop there. John Linus shot me an email because he said I was reading this, verse 8 and 9 of of chapter 1, and he sent me a quote from John Adams. And he said it made me think about this quote. Here's the quote. Our Constitution, John Adams, American history, you know the guy. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He's not the only one to say that. Most of the founding fathers at one point or another said, the Constitution will work as long as we are a Bible-believing nation. As long as we are a God-fearing moral people. As long as we maintain the Judeo-Christian ethic. If that's our value system, this Constitution of the United States of America will work. When does it stop working? When America becomes godless. So if you wonder why the Constitution doesn't doesn't seem to be doing what it used to do, that's why. But if you wonder why there's lawlessness, well, the law was given for the lawless. The law was given, Paul says, for the the rebellious. And to handle our own Constitution, we've got to handle the word of truth. But if we don't have the word of truth, we will not rightly handle our Constitution. Paul will later remind Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. A verse many of you know. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And that's what we're doing. That, that's why we open the Scriptures together. I mean, my hope and my prayer is that Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, this is just training for the accurate handling of the word of truth. So that then the rest of the week, you're accurately handling it, and I am as well. And we train up to study and to show ourselves approved. So let's accurately handle this this list that Paul gives here. 
It's one of these Pauline sin lists he's about to pour out, talking about different sin behaviors of people. And first of all, when Paul says the law is good, again, he's not talking about generic civic duties. He's not talking about societal norms. He's not talking about the fact that any nation has a set of laws and, and the law is good if it's, if it's followed, it's a good thing. No, he's talking about the law of God. He's referring to the Mosaic law. Yes, Ephesus is primarily Greek. So he's not talking to a primarily Jewish church, he's talking to a primarily Greek church. But as he's talking to them, he is referring to the law. It's important to understand that because of what is about to follow. Think this through with me. The law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul said the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? That's why God gave the law. He didn't give the law to a righteous people. Israel was not a righteous people. He gave the law to illuminate, to expose the lawlessness and rebellion that was already there in the heart. Now don't get me wrong, I love Israel. Spend just a little bit of time with me, you'll find that out. I love the Jewish people, I am fascinated by Jewish traditions, by Jewish things. I especially am interested in the feasts and their fulfillment by Messiah. But I do not understand those Christian pseudo-Jewish wannabes. And I've mentioned this before. I do not understand Christians who want to be Jewish, who, who are not. And I'm not talking about someone who is culturally Jewish and raised Jewish and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then continue to practice the cultural norms of Judaism and, and bringing it all in praise to Messiah. I'm talking about Christians who start to play Jewish games and start to keep Jewish feasts and start to do all these things as though it makes their, their it makes them more righteous. That's not how it works. The law was not made for the righteous person. The law was made for the lawless and the rebellious. And that's the whole point of it. Man, don't go back to the law unless you're lawless and rebellious. Now, if you're lawless and rebellious, go to the law. But all it's going to do is show how rebellious and lawless you truly are. But wait a minute. If Paul says that the law was not made for the righteous person, well then who is the righteous person? It's you. If you are in Jesus Christ. If you have been blood-bought by Jesus, if you are washed by the power of His blood, if you have been redeemed, you are the righteous person and the law was not made for you. Jesus came for you. And Jesus came for me. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, get this, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by hard work and lots of effort and doing the best they can. Oh, you know better? The righteous will live by faith. That's Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by faith. 
Paul says in Galatians 3.11, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. If you have faith in Jesus, you have been washed in the blood. If you've been washed in the blood, you are righteous. Guess what? If you're righteous, the law was not made for you. So I don't have to keep the law. Well, let me give you a radical thought. No, you don't. Because the law doesn't save you. What does happen is when grace comes in and you get washed and you get cleansed, you begin to do lawful things because you've been saved by grace. Because you've been washed in the blood. Suddenly those things that were lawless and were rebellious are of no interest. And actually look pretty ugly and smell pretty stinky. And the sheep want to get washed. We are the righteous ones. I know it's hard to believe sometimes. But the law again was given to expose the rebellious. And so beginning with that concept of rebelliousness and and lawlessness, Paul now lists out several examples of those for whom the law remains in effect. Watch this. The law was not made for a righteous person, he says, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. For the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers or mothers. For murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else. And stop right there, but there's a list for you. The law was made for them. The law was made for this group of people. Understand this. The list that Paul just gave us is much more than a rambling indictment of easy targets. Cheryl gets me on this because every now and then if I'm looking for just like sin examples, there are two three, two or three go-tos that I use every single time because they're just easy. You know? They're just easy targets. I won't do it right now because then I would just be proving her right. <laughs> But Paul's not doing that. He's not just thinking off the top of his head, well, there's this and there's that, and these are all these ugly, horrible things, and we'll just throw these out there. No, no, no. It's not what he's saying. Watch this. Think about this. He starts with the lawless and rebellious, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. And they all have something in common. They're all connected. Now, all of these words are Greek alliterations. That is, if we were reading it in the Greek, you would hear they start with the same sound. And so there's kind of a a poetry almost to it that that Paul is, is utilizing here. But then you get to the final word in that first part of the list, which is the word profane, and it's not an alliteration. In fact, it jumps off the page at you. It's babalos. So you're kind of jumping along poetically, and all of a sudden, babalos, which is profane. And I think written intended to leap off the page. To to grab the attention of the hearers at the time that Timothy perhaps was reading this letter to the church at Ephesus. What does it mean, profane? Get this. Because I think it sums up the rest of this first part of the list. The lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane sums it up. Profane is literally where the sole of the foot treads. Why would that be profane? Because the implication is that it's where mankind goes. That it is worldliness. It's not holy. It's not spiritual. It's worldly. It's where the foot of a human being treads, which is where? On the planet. 
There is a way, Proverbs 14.12 tells us, which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that we think sounds good. We think this will get us home. This will do it. This will make things right. Seems right. Sounds good. It's earthly wisdom. It's wisdom from below, the Bible would say. It's profane. Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Why? Because our way is the way of the world. Our way is worldliness. Our way is profane. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then John writes, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, there is a worldliness, there is the way of man, there's where the human foot treads, and then there's the thing of the Spirit. There are the heavenly things, there are the spiritual things. And that's what we're called to. But but we're still not quite there. The lawless, rebellious, ungodly sinners, unholy, profane. This is all one list. All dealing with one specific direction. And these descriptive words all have to do, listen, with a person's relationship with God. And that's what ties these words all together. They all have to do with how you relate to or rebel against God the Father. Which is interesting because it's exactly the same presentation in the first half of the Ten Commandments. Listen to this, it's Exodus chapter 20. If you want to turn there, in fact, go ahead and do that. Keep a finger in 1 Timothy 1, turn back to Exodus 20. Because you're going to find something very interesting in this list that Paul gives us. While you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. I want you to hear the first 11 verses. God spoke all these words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, implication of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Man, I wish our country understood that. It is so casual in our culture. I, I, could, I could talk about each one of the commandments. I, I won't do that. I don't have time tonight. But that's just one that still is a standout to me when I hear God's name misused or used profanely as in where the human foot goes. It's like we're trampling on the holiness of God. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verses 1-11, through the first half of the Ten Commandments, or what they call the Decalogue, the first half of the Decalogue is all about mankind's relationship with God. 
Every one of those commands deals with how I relate to the Father and how the Father desires for me to relate with Him. That relationship that we have. And Paul describes back in 1 Timothy the lawless and rebellious, the ungodly, the sinner, the unholy and profane, and all of those attitudes, all of those rebellions are people's rebellion against God. Just like the first half of the Ten Commandments. And I know that this is what is on Paul's mind. Because all of this list and what he's saying here as he's speaking to Timothy. Remember, Timothy's already been trained by Paul, so Timothy would lock in very quickly to what Paul's getting at here. But all of this has to do with establishing and maintaining a love for God and all things godly. That is the first half of the list and the first half of the Ten Commandments. But now follow the rest of it through. If you're flipping back and forth in 1 Timothy chapter 9, what's the next thing on the list? After unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Kill their fathers and mothers. I mean, that seems a little weird. Why is that on the list? It's actually called patricide. We call it patricide for a, a child to kill a parent is patricide. And we get the word from patrilois, which is the word that Paul is using here. Those who kill fathers and mothers, it's a single word. The patrilois. And it literally puts two Greek words together. Patros, or patra, which is father, and, and lois, which is beating. So he's putting together the idea of beating parents, abusing parents. Patricide. So killing parents would be to the extreme, but this talks about anyone who is abusive toward parents. We often look the other direction. We think about child abuse, but you know what? It goes the other way as well. And I believe, personally, it's just my opinion, but the abuse of parents doesn't have to be physical. It can be ignoring. It can be cutting off. It can be not honoring, not showing respect. Well, that's interesting because Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. What's the next one in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9? After those who kill fathers and mothers, murderers. Murderers. The sixth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. And then... Paul continues and says, immoral men and homosexuals in verse 10. Well, guess what the next commandment is? Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. He's paralleling everyone. He's not just, again, throwing out random ideas, but each one of these are signified in the Decalogue itself, and Paul is tracking it straight down. He's talking about the immoral and homosexuals. Well, how does that exactly apply to you shall not commit adultery? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Paul is paralleling the Decalogue. Hebrew thought, by the way, Hebrew thought says that while all 613 commandments of the law are for the Jews, the Ten Commandments are for all the nations of the world. The rabbis teach that and have that belief. And I would agree, because the application of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, that's for all of us. That speaks to a morality and a value system for all mankind. But since this is as much an issue today as it is in the first or was in the first century, when he says, immoral men and homosexuals, those two words focus in on them. They are, immorality is pornos, 
where we get the word pornography, and it literally was either a male prostitute or a fornicator, which is, as I just said, the same thing as adultery. There is no difference. Someone might say, well, at least I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've had sex outside of the marriage of one man and one woman, you've committed adultery. It's the same thing. I just fornicated. I didn't commit adultery. That's the same thing. They are two different words. Adultery obviously focuses in on have you had an affair or have you had sex outside of your marriage, your current marriage. But fornication is have you had sex prior to that marriage. So again, it's the same idea. Pornos, homosexuals, the word homosexual, I need to point this out to you here. There are those who try to play with Greek words and try to play with Bible meaning and try to change the meaning, saying, well, that's not really what the word means, or that's not really what's implied here. The word for homosexuals, there is no way around this. There simply isn't. It is arsenocoitus. Arsenocoitus. Coitus, we have that word. We use that word. And that is our word for sexual intercourse. Arseno is the word for a man who lies down. Arsenocoitus is a very explicit Greek word that means a, a man who lies down with another man sexually. That's what the word means. There is no other definition for it. If you look at ancient Greek and how the word was used in ancient Greek, extra-biblical Greek, that's what the word means. Homosexual, that's the word. And it's only used twice in the New Testament. This particular word, there's another, tra- another word that's translated homosexual in other places. This particular word is used two times. In this list that Paul lays out here, and also um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which says, and I'll read this list to you, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, there's the word, Arsenocoitus. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't live that lifestyle and expect just to wander right on into the kingdom. But then Paul says this, and I've told you it's one of my favorite verses in all Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Are you serious? Are you telling me that some of those people are at that church? Yeah, dirty sheep. But listen, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And this is the thing that sometimes we miss, especially in the church today and especially in liberal thinking that says you can come to Christ, you can be a follower of Jesus, and you don't have to change your lifestyle. You don't have to change your behavior. You just keep being who you are and doing what you do, but just do it as a Christian. It doesn't work. Because Paul says, such were some of you. This was the life. It is no longer the life. Because when you're sanctified, when you are washed in the blood of Jesus, it changes you. The proof is in the changed heart. And the changed heart changes the behavior. The reality is, gang, if you want to live any of those lifestyles of rebellion, 1 Corinthians 6 list or the list that Paul gives right here, if you want to live in a lifestyle of rebellion, what you are effectively saying is, I want to live by the law. I choose to live by the law. See, we have two choices. Since God gave the law to Israel, 
We have two choices. You live by the law, or you live by grace. If you live by grace, you fall into the category, such were some of you. You are no longer that way. You have been changed. You're born again. You are fresh. You're new. And that old life is over. But if you want to live that old life, you're saying effectively, I want to live under the law. And you know what? You can. You can do that. You can choose to live under the law. But my friends, the law is ultimately unforgiving. Because you've got to live by every aspect of the law. Leviticus 18.22 Let me give you a couple of examples of the law that tie in right with what we're reading here. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That's the law. So if you choose to live unrighteously, then you live by the law, but the law doesn't allow for this. And furthermore, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, and the law says they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now you might say, well, I just, I just don't accept that. Romans 9.20 Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? I don't accept that. It doesn't matter if you accept that. That's the way it is. You live under the law, and therefore every curse is yours if you don't keep the law perfectly. Or you live by grace, having been born again and changed, leaving behind all the old lifestyle. You no longer live in it. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? And listen, gang, it is, in my opinion, an absolute cop-out to reject the moral teachings of Paul in the New Testament as archaic or intellectually intolerant. That's a cop-out. That's too easy. Well, I just don't accept that. Well, you know what? Rather than rejecting it, or evading it, or completely ignoring it, rather than joining the ranks of those who say, I can be a Christian and an adulterer. I can be a Christian and a homosexual. I can be a Christian and a thief. And a liar. And pick your poison. I can be a Christian and all of these things. Well, how about you stop for a moment and think about what's really on the table. What the offer really is. Well, what's that? Hold that thought. I'll come back to it. Paul says, immoral men and homosexuals. And what he's talking about here is absolutely clear and it's been defined and redefined and redefined again in Scripture and this culture and this fellowship and Christians in this age need to understand this. And that is that all sex outside of marriage is, according to God, adultery. Because all sex outside of marriage defiles the marriage bed. Whether it's sex before marriage, affairs during marriage, or homosexuality, any of it, it's all adultery. It's all the same thing. Guys, the marriage bed and gals... The marriage bed is intended by God to be undefiled one man for one woman. And ideally for one life. It's how we were made. 
It goes right back to that desire for a relationship, for, for a love companionship. We want that. We desire that. We mess it up a lot, but, but that's where we want to be. And so again, as we read down the list, what we, we find is that every single thing that Paul says falls in line with the Ten Commandments. And it continues. These are not just arbitrary. He's tying all the lawlessness and rebellion back to the law. In verse 10, he continues after immoral men and homosexuals. He says, and kidnappers. Kidnappers. Well, what's the next in the Ten Commandments? The Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. And it was absolutely the Greek understanding that kidnapping was the theft of human life. And so Paul's taking it to its logical extreme, not just stealing someone's goods, but stealing someone. The theft of human life. And then he continues on after kidnappers. He says, and liars. Well, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus twenty sixteen. So on Paul's list, liars and perjurers. He's following the Ten Commandments. The tenth and final commandment in Exodus 20, verse 17, is you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the one commandment that Paul does not specify here is that covetousness. Instead, he makes a blanket statement, which I believe is kind of the point of the whole thing. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here's the list all the way down through the ninth commandment. And then the tenth commandment, which is covetousness, and which is pretty broad in and of itself. Paul says, man, anything... Anything that's contrary to sound teaching. And he's just shown us the Ten Commandments paralleled here in this passage. And he says if it's contrary to sound teaching, man, it's lawless. It's rebellious. Sound teaching, I I like the word sound, and you might note this in your Bibles. It's hugiano, and it literally means healthy. This is healthy teaching. This is wholesome food to eat. Twelve times in the New Testament, this word is used, and uh, only four times outside of the pastoral epistles. So Paul uses the word sound, meaning healthy or whole. He uses eight times in these three letters. And every time outside the three letters it's used, it's referring to physical health. But every time inside these three letters it's used, it's referring to spiritual health. Sound doctrine, healthy teaching. If you want to have the healthiest diet on earth, if you want to be in good health where the law of God is concerned, listen, don't keep it. You want to be healthy in regards to the Ten Commandments? Don't keep the Ten Commandments. Keep faith in Jesus. That's where the commandments are fulfilled. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. That's what's on the table, by the way, in front of us. I said a few moments ago, why don't we pause for a moment, and and if you're having trouble with the Word of God, and trouble with what God calls sin, and what is immoral, and what is an abomination to God, if that's bothering you at all, why don't you stop long enough to see what is on the table? What is God laying out in front of us? 
And it's very simply this. You can choose to live by the law through hard work and it will be futile because you can't keep it. Nobody can. Or you can choose to live in the love. The goal of our instruction. The love of God through His grace in Christ Jesus. Those are the options. And God puts them on the table. He puts the law on the table first. He shines a light through the law on all of our sin and shows us we are incapable of keeping this. And then He offers us the beautiful alternative. Trust me. Believe in me. And I will give you eternal life. Turn it over to me. Let me walk it out before you. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now looking back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 parallels the first half of the Ten Commandments which relate to God. Verses 9 at the end on through verse 10 parallel the second half of the Ten Commandments which all relate to each other. Some of you Bible students have thought about this before, but that's what the Ten Commandments does. The first half is our love relationship with God. The second half is our love relationship with each other, which is the perfect parallel to what Paul is saying here, because the goal of our instruction is love. And it was Jesus who answered the question, what's the great commandment of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And in saying that, Jesus covers the entire first half of the top ten. And then He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And He covers the last half. And then Jesus says, remember, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So even when the Decalogue was given, it was given to shine a light on our need, to cause transgression to increase but to show us that it is about love, that God's intention is love. Now, we read this, and and I know what some might think. It's what I would think if I read this and just stopped at verse 11. Well, Mr. Apostle, you're one to talk. Getting all up in our faces about sin and rebellion, I don't like being preached at. And Paul's preaching at me. Hey, Paul, what about you? Huh? I'm calling us all sinners. What about you, Paul? Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. What about Paul? He doesn't say, I am so thankful God chose me in my righteous state and my holy Hebrew background and all that I had to offer he looked at me and said Paul, Paul, he's my man no Paul immediately turns around and says listen, I am the one to talk here because this list I land right on it I am among those I came from that a blasphemer a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And then he continues to say, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord 
was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Protos in the Greek. I'm number one. Paul would have the big foam finger. And he'd say, it's me! Number one sinner man! In fact, the word protos is also translated chiefest. I am the chief sinner. I like the King James translation, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am big chief sinner man. That is Paul's self-designation. And in the midst of calling out all of this sin, by the way, take a hint from this, brothers and sisters. In the midst of pointing out the darkness and the depravity and the need for grace, Paul says, and that was me. I get it. I did it. And I think maybe some of our evangelism, some of our sharing of the Gospel of Jesus can come from the same place. Hey man, I understand. You don't know me before I knew Jesus. I get where you're coming from. I know why this is a struggle for you. It was a struggle for me. I know sin. My life has had carnage from sin, just like you. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm here to share with you the glorious grace that saved my life. I was saved from myself. Paul says, I'm big G sinner, man. Why did God choose Paul in the first place? Because he was a brilliant Jew? No. He he sent Paul to the Gentiles. Which I love the irony. He picked probably one of the greatest Jewish minds of his day and called him to go teach Gentiles. And by the way, he picked Peter to go to the Jews. Big dumb fisherman. Why did God do it that way? So that no one would even think for a minute that it was Peter or Paul who had the intelligence or could could pull this off. This guy's a Jew among Jews, and yet he's going to the Gentiles. That's got to be a God thing. This guy's a big dumb fisherman, but the Jews are listening to him. That's got to be a God thing. And he will do the same with you. He's done the same with me. He doesn't put us where we think we should be. He doesn't put us sometimes where all of our real gifts are. This is what I bring, Lord, and I can do for you. And He goes, oh, that's great. I want you to do this. But Lord, I stink at that. Exactly. (laughs) Lord, I'm terrible at that. I can't do... The second you say, I can't do that, that's when God goes, now I've got you. You're right. You can't. So no one's going to question or think for a moment that it's you doing it. They'll know it's me. And he gets all the glory. Was Paul chosen because he was lawfully untarnished? Not in the least. He describes himself as blasphemous, persecuting, and a steamroller. A steamroller? (laughs) Look at this. I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. I use the word steamroller. Violent aggressor is an interesting Greek word, and it will will sound familiar to some of you, and it's hubristus. Does that sound familiar? Hubris. Our English word hubris. Prideful. Hubristus, where we get hubris, is one who trashes others for personal gain. 
The violent aggressor is someone who tramples over other people to get where they need to go. To build themselves up. And Paul says, that was me. I was Mr. Hubris. I was the steamroller. I would smash anybody who got in my way. He did with the church. Paul thought the church was getting in the way of true Judaism, and so he steamrolled. He says, that describes me. So, why would God choose someone like that? Verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Paul is saying, man, if He can save me, He can save anyone. One of the greatest testimonies you have as a follower of Jesus, man, especially if you come out of a carnage background, if He can save you, He can save anyone. It's a wonderful witness. Where I've been, and He saved me, don't be silent about that. you got nothing to hide. You know? Use it for the Gospel, man. And can't you say the same thing have you ever had that thought? Well, if God can save me, who, who can't He save? Is there anyone God can't save? Only one. Someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, doesn't mean shaking your fist at God and saying, I'm mad at you. And it doesn't mean taking God's name in vain. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a heart that goes so hard, it absolutely looks God in the face and says, I will not follow you. I reject you. And the reason why that person is no longer salvageable is because they have turned their heart against God and they won't allow Him to save them. But in every other case, is there anyone who Jesus can't save? Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death and into life. If you try to keep the laws we were talking about, you're going to pass into death. It will kill you. But if you live by grace, you come out of death and into life. Jesus said in John 6.40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up in the last day. And Paul can say, that's me. That is me. Big chief sinner man, now born again child of God. I've been washed. I've been changed. And part of the reason that God saves, part of the reason we now belong to Christ, if indeed you do, if you're a follower of Jesus, part of the reason is that as you walk in this world, as you live a saved person, you become a walking illustration of grace. I think that's marvelous. That someone could look at me and go, Really? God saved you? Yeah. Don't you know He could save you too? If He can save me, He can save anyone to the glory of His name. And by the way, you might want to note this in verses 12-17, through in this kind of middle section of this first chapter. Ten times Paul refers to Jesus, not you. Let me say that again. Ten times. Ten times? 
Well, that's the number of the commandments, isn't it, that we were just looking at. Ten commandments. He goes after, he points out, he lays them out in more modern first century language as to what was going on in Ephesus and people who would live lawlessly and rebelliously against the Lord. Walks through the Ten Commandments in his own list and then turns around and ten times he names directly or indirectly the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who does it, not you. It is by the grace of God, not by your hard work. Jesus is the sole source of our eternal life. On the other hand, let me ask this question. Do any of us really have such hubris that we would actually think ourselves unsalvageable by the grace of God? And I will say to you this, in my opinion, one of the most arrogant things a person can ever say is God can't save me. That is pure human pride. Because that's you saying, I'm, I'm just too far gone. That's pride. You really think that you're the special person in 6,000 years of human history that God can't reach? You have that special place? If God can save me, He can save anyone. And by the way, the God who does the saving, Jesus Christ, verse 17, it says, Now to the King eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And yes, He is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Personified in the Son, the exact representation, Hebrews tells us, of the Father's nature. And Paul says in verse 17, this used to be a song we sang. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is heavenly worship. That's like Paul just kind of busts out here in this single verse and and sings this little praise song before getting back into the letter. And whoever was scribing for him at the time just kept writing. I mean, I imagine it that way. I don't know if that's how it happens, but I could see Paul just busting into a little mini hymn, you know, and whoever's writing going, oh, that's good. You know, let's put that in there too. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 7 verse 11 that says all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And when you worship God that way, you worship Jesus that way in the Spirit. Verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. And there's that relationship again calling Him Son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these, and Paul now does something rare, he names people, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these guys. Hymenaeus, Alexander, what we know, what we can assume based on their placement in Paul's letter here, 
is their self-indulgent impact was being felt at Ephesus. These are a couple of guys who Paul calls out. He tags them big time. Hymenaeus, we'll hear Paul mention him again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, avoid worldly and empty chatter. It'll lead to further godliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So these are a couple of guys who, say, who are saying they missed the rapture in Ephesus. Resurrection's over and you're stuck here. That's just the way it is. That's what Alexander or what Hymenaeus was teaching. So apparently, from when Paul wrote this and warned Hymenaeus to four or five years later when he writes Second Timothy, Hymenaeus is still at work. The heretic is still spouting off. He is still shipwrecking people's lives. And then in Second Timothy chapter four, verse fourteen, he mentions another Alexander. Is it the same Alexander's right here? I'm not sure. But he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Hymenaeus, we get two mentions. Alexander in the scriptures, we see his name mentioned five times in the New Testament. Five times. The first time is Alexander, who's the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried the cross for Jesus. We see him named in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And because he's named there, Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross, and it says, and he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we believe that Mark mentioned those two boys because they probably were Christians in the early church. Could it be the same Alexander? There's another Alexander who's a member of the high priestly family in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 4, verse 6. Another Alexander who is a Jew there in the Ephesian riots. That's Acts chapter 19, verse 33. Then there's this Alexander mentioned, and finally in 2 Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith. So five different Alexanders, and he could be unique in this reference in 1 Timothy, because again, Alexander was a common name, or it's possible that he could be a combination of one or more of these references. We just don't know. But here's the thing to know. With both of these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says... I handed him over to Satan. You ever said that about anybody? I mean, that's serious. Jesus said that about Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan, he calls Peter. For you do not have the interest of God in mind, but the interest of man. And here Paul says, these guys, I have handed them over to Satan. What exactly does that mean? Paul says that one other time. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. He says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Interesting because he says a similar thing here. I've handed them over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Please understand that Paul's church discipline, Paul's disfellowshipping was always for the hope of restoration. Always. It was never about, we're going to boot that guy out just so that we don't have to deal with him anymore. We're going to get rid of her because she's just a headache, and if we can just get her out of the church, we don't have to worry about it, and we can go along our merry way. That's not God's way. It never has been. If anyone is ever asked to step aside, ever asked to leave, it's so that there will be discipline. 
I see it as a last-ditch effort. And even on the way out the door saying, we want you here, we love you, but you can't do here what you're doing right now. Paul hands them over to Satan. Probably that just means he disfellowshiped them. He had them put out of the church. Which means if they're out of the church, and get this, if you put someone out of the church, then you're putting them into the world. Handing them over to Satan. You're putting them into the domain of Satan, which is the world, rather than the cover of the church. And and this is important to comprehend. Why would anyone want to be outside as Hurricane Irma is blasting through, heading toward Florida? Why would someone want to be outside to face that? Wouldn't you want to be holed up in a place of safety and protection? Why would anyone not want to be in the church? Which is supposed to be our place of safety and protection and covering and fellowship and security and love and compassion and relationship and companionship. The church is supposed to be that good thing. There is spiritual protection here. Jesus built the church. If you got a problem with church, you got a problem with Jesus' construction. Because Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church. I will do it. It's my church. It's the first time we see the word church, by the way, in the New Testament is when Jesus says it. I'm going to build it. And it's, it's the place where Christ is present. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there. Matthew 18, verse 20. Where's that? The church. And I want to be where Jesus is. Not outside getting blown away by the world in the domain of Satan. The church, the Bible tells us Christ Jesus is the son of the house. The household of God. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, Christ is a faithful son over his house. Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So I do not understand why Christians would not want to be in the church. Step out of the church, which is your right. You can. You can choose to. And get blown away by the world. Well, the church is imperfect. I know that. We've already talked about dirty sheep. I know we sin here. I know we don't always get it right. But man, I'd rather have an argument with a sibling in the house than be standing outside getting blown away. Hymenaeus and Alexander, these guys are out. They're out so that there will be restoration. But honestly, I am more interested in Timothy. Timothy, look back at verse 18. This command I entrust to you. Oh, note that. He's just gone through the Ten Commandments, hasn't he? And now he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep the faith, and a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? How do you fight by a prophecy? Note the wording. Paul says, I I command you that by the prophecies that were spoken over you, you fight the good fight. So this is the key to Timothy's ministry. He had prophecies spoken over him. He was anointed for a purpose. And he is to fight the good fight by that. What does that mean? The prophecies spoken over Timothy were his spiritual gift. 
They were prophecies of what God was calling him to do. Note this, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And then he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Three times Paul refers to the prophetic utterance over Timothy. And here he says, by those prophecies made for you, made over you, by them I want you to fight the fight. What is he saying? Timothy's weapon of warfare against heresy is teaching. That's Paul's prescription to Timothy. And he will say it over and over and over in the two letters to Timothy. Preach the Word. Teach the Word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort, edify. Preach the Word. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Study to show yourself approved, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. Over and over, Paul says, Timothy, your best weapon against heresy is the teaching of the Word of God, and you have the gift of teaching. And I believe he did. I believe that's exactly what was spoken over Timothy when they laid hands on him. And he was anointed to teach the Word. But remember this, don't forget this. It was teaching in relationship. It was doctrine in companionship. Because the goal of our instruction is love.